How's everybody doing today? It's glad to see I'm the learning the latest of everyone today. That's good. To, it's always good to see. I told the Dixons that you're not late if you beat the pastor. That's that's a rule, right? Well, today we are in Acts chapter nine. We're starting with the first verse, and we've been studying the book of Acts. And we've been looking at how God has gone about transforming his church from a small number of ethnic and religious Jews to the worldwide diverse collection of believers that we are a part of today. And as we uh, get started here, if you don't mind, will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you so much. I thank you for the provision you've made in my life. I thank you for the provision you've made in this church's life. I thank you for your word and for this time to study it. I'm moved to think about those believers who are in places where uttering your name can mean death. Lord, I pray for them this morning. I ask that you put on my heart and the heart hearts of those who hear my voice to pray for them and to provide for them in any way we can. God, this morning as I bring the sermon that I prepared, I rest in faith that the message you would have heard will be heard no matter what mistakes I make or stumbles that trip me up. God, I thank you for the fact that your word does not return void. And Lord, most of all, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name we pray. And he is the reason that we can come before you with confidence and we can stand in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the past couple of weeks, we've been studying The conversions of people. We've looked at the conversion of an Ethiopian governmental official, uh, the respected Roman military man. We have, uh, we're going to continue that today as we look at, um, we are going to see Jesus claim a convert that is the most unlikely believer yet. Acts. Chapter 9, that's where we are. I'm going to start reading verse 1. But Saul, which by the way, I'm going to try my best to use the name Saul here. It is very difficult for me. I I may trip up and say, Paul, please forgive me if I do so. Uh, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now I want to draw your attention to the phrase that describes Christians here. 
It says, if he found any belonging to the way. See, this is used because Christians then believed, as we do now, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. John 14, 6 tells us, Jesus said to them, said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is radically unpopular in today's world. And, quite honestly, it was radically unpopular then for the same reasons. How dare you tell me my God is not real? And, and what I have to believe or do to be saved. Who are you? Well, that's a good question. Because I am no one. I am a sinner who deserves hell. Inside. That's it. Full stop. But I'm not the one making this claim. Jesus is. In this multicultural modern world, many say Jesus uh, many say that Jesus was one of the many great moral teachers that, that should be revered, but are obviously not God. C.S. Lewis responds to this line of thought in his Mere Christianity, which is published, by the way, in 1952. He actually wrote it in 1942. So this is not, again, a new problem. But he wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or even something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He was not, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently somehow strange no matter how strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem I have to accept the view that he was and is God now C.S. Lewis said it very clearly now, it's the same claim that enraged Saul. Now, who is Saul? Saul describes uh, the two traits as, that distinguished his life before his conversion. 
the two characteristics that made him a remarkable Jewish man of faith in Galatians 1, verses 13 through 16. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So, two things here. Firstly, the zeal with which he persecuted Christians. And secondly, his ability to keep the traditions of his fathers. Paul was filled with hatred. And he followed legalism and traditions. Regrettably, this description is too easily applied to many who self-profess Christianity today. If you profess to be a Christian, but your life is characterized by anger, if you focus on obeying a set of rules or following traditions, you need to prayerfully and humbly listen to God's call to believe that God's grace through faith will save you. Nothing else. Now back to verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I'm struck for the first time studying this passage in the scripture. I realized something. Why did Jesus personalize Saul's persecution? Jesus had lived, died, been resurrected, and ascended into heaven by this point. How was Saul persecuting Christ? Saul was definitely persecuting the church. But Jesus' followers... And Jesus' followers, but not Jesus. So listen to this. Jesus is the head of his church. Every believer is connected to Christ. We have the Spirit of God in us. What is done to his church is done to Christ. We should consider this. We should consider this when we're being critical and demeaning of the church, of Christ's church. Back to verse 4. And, the, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Saul had heard the teachings of the Christians. He had heard the gospel. He was familiar with the claims that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus had come to live the life 
We could not live and die the death we deserved. And by grace through faith, we are rewarded by the Father for the life Jesus lived. We are counted blameless, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus did. Saul was aware of this radical claim that set Christians apart from all other faiths then and now. It was not by following certain rules or traditions, reciting certain prayers or doing certain rituals that saves the Christian. It is Christ alone that saves. This radical idea, this gospel, was striking at the very heart of the religious leader's power and their tradition. This is what Saul had been so offended by. You see, Saul was a Pharisee. He prided himself in being better than the riffraff and the commoners. He he was special because of what he did. And now these Christians, how, how dare they claim that they are saved? The Pharisees dedicated their lives to studying God's word and strict observance to religious customs and traditions and overt displays of piety. How dare these Christians claim salvation? Paul knew their teachings and hated them for it. Yet when confronted by Jesus, Saul has the response that all have. He calls him Lord. We should not be surprised by this. We are told in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the time, excuse me, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The only question is one of timing. Does one confess Jesus as Lord on earth and be saved? Or does, or does one wait and confess it before the throne? And be judged. It's easy to brush by this word Lord, but let's make sure that we understand what it means. It's used a lot in Scripture, over 700 times. And it means He to whom a person or thing belongs, about which He has power of deciding. Master, Lord, the possessor. And disposer of a thing. Its owner. One who controls or has control of a person, the master. It's a title of honor expressing respect and reverence with which servants greet their masters. Saul was confused about who this was, but he was sure it was his Lord. His owner, his master, this is his God. 
If you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I pray that you have this moment in your life. This moment when your master seeks you out. Jesus speaks of this in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, or has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Saul was lost. So Jesus sought him out. That's my prayer for all of us. Is to have that moment when our master seeks us out and reclaims us. Picks us up. Puts us on his shoulders. And returns us. To his flock. So let's let's look at Jesus' reply as Saul asks him who he is. And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he led, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It's my belief that this is the moment, the very moment of Saul's salvation. Look how he responds to meeting Jesus. He, he prays. He sets aside food and water. He fasts. He prays. I believe that he is communing with God, probably struggling with his sin, <coughs> confessing the many times he has persecuted Christians. I can't imagine the load that Saul is bearing at this moment. I believe that Saul was doing the very thing that he encourages others to do in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I believe that's what Saul's doing here. He is struggling with that. Why would God love me? After all I've done, why would Jesus reveal himself to me? Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named 
Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now let's compare these two responses to God. We have Saul, whose response is, uh, who are you, Lord? And we have Ananias, who says, here I am, Lord. Now they both are calling God Lord, because that's what happens when the Lord shows up. But we see this distinct difference. What's your response when God calls? Is it, who are you? Or is it, here I am? What an amazing difference. Verse 11 tells us that, uh, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And to the house of Judas. And just, just an aside here. I, I think it is wonderful how the Bible tells us about places that exist. Damascus is a city. It still is a city. There is a street that is this street. You can go there and stand there and say, this is the street that Ananias walked on. That is amazing. I'm so thankful that God leaves those things for us. I know I need it. So I'm so thankful of that. So he says, go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus called the names of Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias or he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands, his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now something else I love about the Bible is when uh, the Bible shows us a Christian responding the way I would. And this, is, this totally makes sense to me. Uh, God... Don't know if you know, um, but uh, yeah, you, you want me to go meet this guy, but uh, yeah, well, God, he, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, uh, but he's a guy that has been around arresting and killing Christians, so there might be a mistake. Missionaries must go through this. God, are you sure that this is the place you want me to go? There's some really bad diseases there. There's, uh, there's no running water there. Crime is really bad there. They imprison Christians there. So, you sure? I know pastors go through this. At least I did. Hey God, are you really sure about this? Because this is going to change my life. This is really going to mess up my plans. Are you sure about this? But God had already given his explanation to Ananias. You see, look, um, God says to Ananias, go to this place and look for Saul, for behold, he is praying. See, God, God had already, it was in there, Ananias just didn't catch it. Yeah, he's praying to me. Like, it, it's, it's going to be fine, he's praying. 
Go do this. But still, you know, God didn't have to give any explanation. He didn't owe anything to Ananias. He didn't have to give him any explanation. And even now, as Ananias is questioning him, we see God's unbounding grace and his patience as he talks to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So, even though Ananias hesitates and questions, which let's be honest, we all do, Ananias obeys. Are you obeying God's call on your life? Are you serving with complete submission to his will? Where are you hesitating? What are you holding back? Because God's got it. If he's calling you, it's because he has a plan for you. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you came. I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul. Did you see that? Ananias called Saul brother. From enemy to brother. You see, here we see the healing power of Jesus. Jesus heals people. He heals relationships. Some of you may have relationships that are strained or even broken. You may have someone in your life that you see as an enemy. But remember, Jesus heals. And he can heal your relationship. It's amazing. Brother to brother from enemy. And the only difference was meeting Christ. That's it. Verse 18. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taken and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. There's, very, there's a lot of clarity right there, right? There's no ambiguity. That's very clear. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confronted the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Saul begins preaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And his preaching, so he's preaching the good news. He's preaching the very gospel he had sworn to destroy. It's amazing. Verse 24, but their plot came, became known to Saul. Which, by the way, this is the response to the world, to the gospel. It's hatred. Don't be surprised when you present the gospel, when you live for Christ and the world hates you. Don't be surprised. That's what they will do. As a matter of fact, you should be encouraged by it because it means you are living the gospel. But is so. Uh, I'm sorry. But the plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. We see in these verses the powerful, wonderful, transformative nature of God. The believers of Damascus, the very people Saul had come to persecute and kill, were now protecting and saving him from persecution. And look at Saul. God transforms Saul from from the religious leader's agent of oppression to God's chosen instrument to spread the gospel, the good news. The good news that Jesus had given his life in order to pay the debt our sin requires. So that when God looks on us, he sees Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus took the punishment for our sins, God rewards us as if we lived Jesus' perfect life. This is beautiful. This is the gospel. 